accepting our own vulnerability so that we can really realize how important it is to make use of our time. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hi, I'm Farah White. Thanks for joining us today on Doorknob Comments here with my co-host, Grant Brenner. Today, we are going to talk about change, um, how to make it happen, and what keeps it from happening when we know ex and understand exactly what we'd like to do differently or how we'd like to be. You know, in some ways, it seems like a straightforward question, but in other ways, at least in, in my experience as, as a therapist and as someone who, who runs a company and, and does a lot of things, it's a tougher question than it might seem, or it comes up more often than, than you might think. What keeps us from changing when we know what's wrong? It's one thing when people say, well, I don't really know what I need to do or how do I do that? A lot of times people know what they should do. For example, quote unquote, should. Um, because a lot of times people feel like they should do something, right? And if you don't do what you should do, then you're bad. And then it gets very distracting. You're caught up in self-criticism or mm -hmm. feeling like you did something wrong. You're mad at yourself or you're feeling ashamed or embarrassed or ineffective. But it's like, okay, I know I, I should exercise regularly. Or I know that meditation would help me if I did it 10 minutes a day. I, I know it's not a matter of time. I mean, I literally have 10 minutes a day mm -hmm. or I should, you know, go to sleep earlier. I know I should stop looking at my cell phone when I'm about to go to sleep. I know I shouldn't watch TV and fall asleep with the TV on. I know I shouldn't have coffee at 9 PM, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And yet I think actually kicking those habits, I mean, some people <clears throat> seem to be able to do it quite easily. And for others, it's much harder. And I think it probably boils down to a couple of different things. One is, you know, how, that how deep and how certain our desire is, right? Because when we change one thing, we're giving something up. Maybe that's a mental block, though. Maybe it feels like a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of the examples I gave are, are sort of day-to-day -day exercise, sleep, eating, you know, work habits. Mm -hmm. I know I, I, should, I should do my work sooner. I shouldn't watch Netflix and, you know, start working at midnight and then wish, you know, I had not stayed up all night. Mm -hmm. But we could also be talking about areas of deep personal change, changing our relationships, um, taking better care of ourselves, not just changing our lifestyle, but also changing our whole orientation toward ourselves. You know, what sometimes people talk about is self-parenting, like yeah. a fundamental change in how we treat ourselves. People are often aware that something just doesn't feel right about how they're living. And they quote unquote, know they should change, but like they quote unquote, can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it does come down to sometimes there's comfort in behaviors or habits or relationships that even if we know 
they're not good for us. Uh, they're familiar. And so to change would be to go into this uncharted territory, which yes, could potentially make things a lot better, but it's going to feel uncomfortable at first. Well, the habit thing comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of validity to the idea of dialing back the perfectionism, creating routines that are small habits. There's some good neuroscience there that you're building like brain pathways little by little. Mm -hmm. So it'd be better to do five minutes of exercise twice a week for 10 weeks than to intend to do two hours of exercise four days a week starting tomorrow for the rest of my life. It'd be better to succeed at five minutes of exercise twice a week for five weeks and build on that than to fail at doing it the right way, quote unquote, the right, right way all of a sudden and then feeling disappointed in oneself and right. sort of embarrassed. Right. And I think it's almost demoralizing for people to, you know, want to do things, feel unable to, and then it sort of contributes to this negative self view that they are someone who can't exercise, can't find the time or the motivation. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, cycle. yeah, on the other hand, like what you're describing would be to be in a state of acceptance about the reality of, you know, the time constraints or, or whatever it is to manage our expectations of what we can actually accomplish. And then I guess to develop an exercise routine accordingly. What does it take to be in such a state of acceptance though? I think it takes a lot of work figuring out not, let's say from, uh, and this is where I have issues with all of the sort of external forces that people take in, whether it's from parents or, you know, partners or friends about what we should be doing and how we should be living our lives. People sometimes have trouble listening to their own voice and what they really want. And that's, I think, what really good therapy can help with. Why do you think people have trouble listening to their own truth? Because I think that the intrusions from the outside world uh, can sometimes, I don't know, instill doubt or they can be louder than our own you know, needs or wishes. Do you think people are conditioned to get a sense of self-esteem by sacrificing their own needs and turning themselves toward tending to others in order to feel like they're good, good father, a good mother, a good doctor, a good husband, a good wife, a good friend. You see that everywhere, right? A lot of therapists, compulsive caregivers, and every family probably has one, if not more than one. But I don't know if that's necessarily what always contributes. I think it's other, it could be other things where people just you're right, don't learn to put their needs first, but also might feel weird saying, hey, listen, I don't need to be super fit and look incredible. I just want to not have a heart attack. If that's your goal, you're not going to find that many, or maybe you could, but not that many people who have those motivations, right? Or, you know, with that example, I want mm -hmm. to be able to run around and have a good time. Um, with mm -hmm. my kids or with friends, I, I want to be able to go for a hike. Yeah. That it's pinned to sort of things that you actually want to do. 
rather than something scary like, okay, I'm trying to have some remote sort of remote benefit of preventing a heart attack mm -hmm. or someone close to me died suddenly of a heart attack and underneath my compulsion to exercise and be like super fit is a fear of death mm -hmm. and some kind of unresolved trauma versus kind of like, okay, I really, I like it if I can, if I can walk around and not get short of breath. Yeah. I, I like it if I can be active and enjoy myself, right. which isn't Absolutely. necessarily going to be accomplished by ru running on a treadmill for, you know, a couple of hours a day, five days a week. You could be super fit, and but what are you going to sort of do with it? How is it going to enhance your quality of life? Or if you're doing it in order to look good for other people, and it's not really coming from within in some way, it's coming from insecurity, mm -hmm. which I guess is another way of something coming from within, but that's not from a secure place. Right, right. And that might also not be enough of a lasting motivation, right? Well, you might be conflicted about it, like resentful. Mm -hmm. Like a part of me is like, oh, I have to, you know, make sure, make sure I keep myself in a certain way so that people, you know, people will think the right way about me. So managing sort of other people's perceptions mm -hmm. of me and my image. And then another part of me might be going like, you know, no, resentful and oppositional right. and angry and feeling yeah. trapped. And so how does that change your answer about what the work of acceptance requires, if at all? Well, I just think it means that we have to acknowledge that there's some conflict there. Like we could want to change 99%. But if we take one side of it and we're not even thinking about that other 1% that just wants to stay the same. 1%, right? It's only 1%. <laughs> or, it's usually like 50, 30%, 50, right? Okay, but you're only, only aware of 1% or something. Yeah, Because we're in, maybe in some level of self-denial. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, denial of self-awareness. Right. Not in the sense of self-deprivation, but we're half aware of who we are. And if most of us aren't comfortable with feeling self-contradictory. And so yeah. we try, maybe a lot of us, I don't know, to think of ourselves as being whole mm -hmm. and complete, but we might have like a sneaking suspicion that there's more parts or sides to ourselves and we don't make room for that in ourselves. And then if, if we feel self-contradictory, we're afraid we're hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Maybe people have accused us of being hypocritical, but it can help to say, I don't really want to exercise, but part of me does, part of right. me doesn't. And then right. people get stuck. Totally. And then you, you know what you need to do, but you don't do it. Yeah, because it's hard to sort of disavow this. <laughs> this rageful, resentful, yeah. deprived, angry, right. vengeful side. Yeah, because there is something that's quite invigorating about it. Though it can lead to self-sabotage too, I think, which For I sure. guess isn't antithetical to invigoration. Right, right. Just acknowledging that that can be enticing, right? What's that, enticing about it, do you think? I don't know, just the idea of doing everything bad, right? Eating what we shouldn't eat, sleeping when we shouldn't sleep, watching TV that we shouldn't be watching. It's like a little bit of a rebellion. Like the cliche joke at this point would be paging Dr. Freud the idea being that it's like a rebellion against some kind of internalized parental or societal morality. Right, right. And I think that's something that is at times kind of glamorized, not so much anymore. People seem to 
see the merits in like a healthier lifestyle, but there's a little bit of a shift. Yeah. But like rock you, stars, mm -hmm. it's not as cool to be so self-destructive. Right. Nowadays, it's more like I'm suffering from bipolar disorder and right. it's not so glamorous. Yeah. And it's tough and I have to work at it and I green juice and, you know, meditate. And that is the way I think to a longer and happier, healthier life. But I, I do think that there, if you look at say certain writers who are considered brilliant and their substance use and philandering and whatever else sort of burnished their image. Burnish? Burnished. Yeah seemed like something aspirational like probably. it's a positive thing yeah it's sexy or it's mm -hmm. marketable yeah it's and then their allure right but then eventually it catches up in these it's ways not so that, happy necessarily right right these, how does it catch up well i was just thinking about um you know like hemingway there was this i was watching this six-part series on pbs that was incredible and it talks about how for a period of time, the drinking and the women, you know, that he had this sort of idyllic life and lifestyle that, you know, was in the end what, what probably killed him. It, it may be that he was also quite depressed. Right. And he, I think he ended his own life. He did. And there was a lot of suicide in his family. But I think there are a lot of people who are depressed who can get treatment and recover especially if they have resources and right well I, I think so i think where we started with this part of the conversation was that self-destruction can have an allure mm -hmm. it can be it can be uh, hyped up by the media from the outside it might look really cool um, but more and more we hear stories about where from the inside it's not quite as appealing and I think the idea might be that if our kind of role models and archetypes change of what is a cool, exciting way to live, then it may be easier for people to make changes in their own life because they may not take as much pleasure from being rebellious when it's at their own expense. Right. I do really like when people who have some sort of fame or celebrity are open about their struggles and what they go through and deal with or their own treatment. And I know that's something that probably would have never happened 20 years ago. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot. I'm, I'm thinking about Britney Spears and her conservatorship, mm -hmm. but I'm also thinking about a lot of the uh, recent athletes, Naomi Osaka, mm -hmm. uh, and even some of the people who have said, you know, I can't compete in the next, you know, whatever the big athletic event is in their field because my knee is messed up and I need to recover. And there's been a whole slew of those recently in the media. And it's, it's really unusual in a way. It, it's striking to me because it's like a kind of a coming out of the closet where right. these elite athletes are saying, I need time to heal and I need to take care of myself because I want to keep competing as long as possible. Whereas 10, 20 years ago, maybe even more recently, they would just quote unquote, suck it up and maybe, you know, hurt their careers or, you know, hurt their bodies for that matter. We're also seeing, it occurs to me, more athletes, particularly male athletes, coming out as gay. Yeah. There was recently someone in the NHL who was the first NHL player and someone recently in the NFL for football. 
And I wonder if it's connected with sort of norming vulnerability and whether, you know, not being ashamed of being allowed to be vulnerable, being allowed to grieve. That's what I was hinting at with self-acceptance. I think when people, when we accept ourselves, we undergo a feeling of loss and there's a grieving process, which partially has to do with accepting our own vulnerability and maybe ultimately mortality so that we can really realize how important it is to make use of our time. Absolutely. And I think that these athletes who are under an enormous amount of pressure to perform and to do press and to be role models and to sacrifice their bodies and, right to sacrifice their bodies to sacrifice their emotional and mental well-being their private lives yeah i just see it as the greatest sort of role modeling of all to be able to say hey i had to step out um i'm sure there are people that are disappointed but the message that gets communicated to fans is hey my i'm, my, I'm more important than a tournament or than Olympics like I have to put my health first and so if they can do it even you know in spite of their like these super elite athletes you know then maybe it will allow one person to just call out of work one day when they need to you know take some time for themselves or they're not feeling up for it yeah I wonder how it might affect fans too because they can get pretty rowdy and of course there's some terrible tragedies of fans um, coming to great harm bodily, you know, mm-hmm. that's a separate issue maybe is the way the body is viewed in sports, mm-hmm. but it's not so different if, if you're, you know, working super hard at a job and you're not sleeping enough or um, you're not setting aside time for things that are important to you outside of work, uh, then, you know, you're, if you're not sleeping enough, you know, that's very common. You're, hurt, you're hurting your body. And I think there's a way where society really says it's, it's okay for you to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Like it says, on one hand, our society says, don't hurt yourself. You know, wellness, 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 and don't hurt yourself. Don't end your life. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, tacitly, it says, you know, work harder, be more productive, make more money, um, be well-known, mm-hmm. you know, impress people. We can, we can do those things up to a certain point. Where's the point at which we decide, okay, we have to go to sleep tonight? Or the point of no return where you just get used to not going to sleep. But you're saying sort of something like if people hit rock bottom, then they're forced to change, Mm, like they can't keep going. Right. Or forced to reflect that this is not the life that they want. And for people that are super, super high achieving, I think they need to be making sure that they're achieving the right thing because we have to design the lives that we want. And if they're achieving, you know, they're on whatever partner track somewhere and working really hard and things are going so well career-wise, but they haven't gone on a date in the past three and a half years, um, they may look back on that and wish that their life were fuller or more balanced. You know, one of the things I find useful here, though I have this open question about whether people can be helped to change without mm-hmm. needing to reach sort of those external sort of rock bottoms, mm-hmm. you know, can therapy actually help people realize what they need faster? But what I'm thinking about with the example you just gave, the way we, um, we s- sort of sell ourselves out 
we make commitments, we commit our future selves to things without being able to like fully consent to it. So, <laughs> you know, you take on a job and then, like you said, you know, a few years down the road, you look back and you go like, gee, I don't quite, I don't know why I agreed to that. I kind of realized at the time that this would require a lot of sacrifices or it could really, you know, maybe it would lead to all my relationships falling apart, but I didn't really know what it meant mm-hmm. until I, until I actually, until it was too late, or maybe, maybe it's not too late, but hopefully not too late until I started seeing the impact it was having. Why do you think people get locked into seeing things a certain way when they've say like made a commitment and, and recognize that it's only kind of half working for them? And, but no. they can't turn around or disappoint oh. people. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of it is about a fear of disappointing others, a fear of disappointing that past self, right? Who said, oh, sure, you can go to school and work full time and, you know, like be present with family and friends, even if that wasn't realistic. But I also think that it comes down to, and this is something that comes up a lot with the birth of a baby or or some similar life change where baby people don't know how they're going to feel they think they're going to feel one way or going to be able to manage something and then it turns out not to be the case and i think that's very disappointing of course but a lot of times we're cut off from that and i think that's one of the roots of some you know postpartum depression and just these things that should feel one way, but they feel another way. That happens, I think, in a lot of different types of achievement. When we meet our goals, there's this sort of, there can be this sadness that, oh, it's not everything it cracked up to be. And medicine is that way too, right? You sacrifice time to take the MCAT thinking, oh, well, it'll be great to like be in med school. And then when you're in med school, you can't wait to be a resident. And then when you're in residency, you're like, oh, well, when I'm in attending, my life is just going to be so awesome. Do you think people need to, do you think we need to deceive ourselves sometimes in order to move forward with things that are challenging? You know, in other words, do you think if people really knew what they were getting into, they might make different decisions? No, when we go to med school or babies. Well, I don't, I'm not sure about that, but I think that's the fear. And I, I know I know some people apply to med school, for example, or grad school or, you know, for a law degree or, you know, anything really challenging. And more and more, I hear stories that during the application process, the, they're told, well, listen, this is what you're really getting into. Are you sure you still want to do it? Mm-hmm. And of course, you can't fully consent to it because you really you don't know what something's going to be like. Right. Exactly. You know. Yeah. There's such a difference between saying, oh, you're going to take a 24 hour call or, and you're going to have 15 admissions or whatever it is, or you're going to be up all night with a screaming newborn. If you haven't experienced that and experiencing it at each stage in life is different, then how do you really know how it's going to affect you? And, and can we give ourselves permission to say, well, I want to try my best, but if this isn't for me, I need to get some help with it, call in reinforcements, you know, transfer to a different type of program. I don't know. Did you ever, do you feel like speaking about your experience in surgery or not really? Well, I don't think that applied. 
Okay. Uh, I, I worked very long hours as a surgical resident, 110, 120 hours a week, sometimes on call every other night. It was prior to the regulations that were put in place. Mm -hmm. But I didn't leave surgery because I thought, oh, like this lifestyle right now is terrible. Though I thought it wasn't helping me at the time. I thought, you know, down the road, what I would end up doing would, wouldn't have been terrible. I was anticipating mm -hmm. being a specialist in, a, in a, a, a relatively manageable surgical field that involved a, a decent amount of working directly with patients around psychological issues that appealed mm -hmm. to me. The reason I left surgery is because as much as I, I loved some aspects of surgery, I really, really wanted to work with this sort of broad range of the human experience. Um, so the way it applies is I might have, I might have, had I been a little more conventionally oriented, said, okay, well, that's good. I'll be a surgical subspecialist. I'll, I'll make a great living. You know, I, I'll have a good work-life balance. Um, but the day-to-day -day work, I didn't think I would feel sort of as into as I knew I loved psych. Yeah. But not everyone knows what they love. Right. But what was it like for you once you realized that and knew that you needed to make a change, like telling your program director and your co-residents? And I didn't feel too guilty about it. I okay. knew it would be okay. Um, I also knew that they would easily replace me because I was in a very desirable subspecialty, and, mm -hmm. and they did. I did. I did want to make sure I wasn't leaving anyone in the lurch, though. So I did decide about a quarter of the way into my second year of surgery that I wasn't going to stay in surgery, but I finished the entire year. Okay. I, it was important for me for my wanting to have a sense of completion because I did it. I did like, I did like it a lot. And I didn't want to feel like I had left people without, without support. I wanted to be doing my part for the team that I felt that I was a part of. Yeah. I think, um, it might have been more difficult for other people or that people don't necessarily, that they're not able to perceive themselves as replaceable, which might be sort of defensive in certain jobs. Well, if people are getting, say, too much of their self-esteem from their work mm -hmm. and their sense of self-efficacy, more particularly, sense of self-efficacy is important for, for people. And self-esteem is dependent on self-efficacy yeah. more than the other way around, then work can mean too much. Feeling sort of too important to everyone can become a burden in, in your personal life as well. If, if part of your thing is for everyone to need you a lot, then that can get stale. For sure. And so I do think that there are probably a lot of people listening who are thinking, yeah, I don't want to always be needed, even though it sometimes feels good. It's also burdensome. And how do we set limits around that? Yeah, my father would always say everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. And so we get a lot of positive things from helping others. It's kind of wired into us on a species level. There's even some research I remember reviewing a few years ago on self-actualization. Uh, some, some listeners may have heard of Maslow's pyramid or triangle. Hier hierarchy? Hierarchy, yeah. <laughs> In the traditional model at the bottom of the hierarchy is basic needs, food, shelter, 
And then there's like education. And at the very tippy top is something that he called self-actualization, which is often associated with kind of the 60s and like spiritual realization mm -hmm. and we're doing what you're passionate about and stuff yeah. like that. And I remember the, the research that I read, they asked people to actually talk about what gave them a feeling of self-actualization. And it turned out to be status okay. and kin care. So kin care. status, like doing well in your profession and kin care, like taking care of people around you was yeah. a kind of a distant second in a way. Though, of course, you can get status and be a caregiver. Yeah, I think a lot of people get status by being caregivers. Well, a certain kind of status. And, and you make yourself important and irreplaceable. And, you know, it's it's a way to have, like, a security in the mm -hmm. community to be mm -hmm. needed and useful. Right. But it can go overboard, of course, is what For we're sure. saying. Yeah, and I think that awareness of that and of our motivations behind it, that we might need to find other things and other ways to feel, I don't know, happy with ourselves. You know, some people listening might be afraid that if they start feeling like they're giving too much or they're not paying enough attention to their own needs, that they're afraid that maybe they'll end up becoming callous or checked out or turn into bad people or un uncaring people or they won't work hard enough mm -hmm. or they won't go to med school if they want to. It's very hard for people to really know what we want, I think. Right. And it reminds me of this idea, you know, when we sort of take on obligations, right? That our obligations might reflect something about what we really want, like hidden desires, so that there's something that feels burdensome, but also good. Can you say a little more? Like when we take on certain roles at work or with friends or even wanting to be the one that's there for everybody that shows up for people. Uh, that's something that I hear a lot in my practice that nobody, uh, like it's, it's almost shameful to forget a birthday or disappoint a friend. Um, I know you don't shameful? feel that way. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I, I, I can feel that way. Really? Okay, I thought maybe it was a more like gender-based thing. I don't know. But there are a lot of guys, I think, who see themselves as very social and affable and having a lot of friends. And... Well, I find it hard to remember birthdays, I think, for developmental reasons mm -hmm. be because of difficulties that I experienced in my family of origin growing up around birthdays and in my family environment. So it's hard for me to keep track of individual birthdays sometimes. And then some people um, are very, very exquisitely sensitive if you forget their birthday. Other people, they're kind of like, that's fine. And and then sometimes you meet someone who's like, birthdays don't mean anything to me at all, which mm -hmm. I always wonder about as well. But I, I would like to remind you that I know that birthdays happen. <laughs> I know that people every have year, birthdays. Every year. <laughs> every every <day>. year. <laughs> And I'd like to point out that every day is the beginning mm -hmm. of a new year. Mm -hmm. It's true. And that if if you had been born on Mercury, mm -hmm. you would you would have a birthday like every twenty seconds or something. <laughs> but the you know the days are a year yeah. and the years are a day on Mercury. But yeah. and how could you plan all those parties? Yeah, really part. is my point. Yeah, yeah. But there if are you were some Mercurial, who would you know try to find a way to do it? Of um, course. They would, they would, 
they would bend over backwards and yeah. they would step up and right isn't there a term in yiddish for someone who is like a quintessentially excellent homemaker and hostess yes balabusta balabusta you taught me that yeah. word really i can't believe you didn't know that word yeah it's like the martha stewart of <laughs> of the shtetl <laughs> the martha stewart of the shtetl <laughs> a balabusta yeah but what people don't realize is kind of what goes on behind the scenes, as we're mm -hmm. sort of saying about athletes, maybe, or, you know, famous people where there's pressure to maintain um, a persona of always being like perky and energetic and happy yeah. and, and so on. One of the thoughts I have about what makes it so hard for people to change is that in a lot of different ways, we have partial knowledge or partial awareness of, of various important things. Mm -hmm. I came up with a list of those things. Okay. So I, I think I organized them in order of like how basic they are. Okay. So the first one was I called how development proceeds. Yeah. So that's like, are we aware of how development works? That's like the user's manual to your personality. And uh, I was thinking of a psychoanalyst named Bion, B-I-O-N, who talked a lot about how people have a basic psychoanalytic function of their personality, which is that you shepherd your own development. And if you weren't sort of raised to raise yourself to be a good self-parent, then you have maybe a partial knowledge of how to help yourself to grow. And yeah. so people have a lot of trouble, you know, doing what they need because they don't even have a basic idea of how they're supposed to develop, which makes it also hard maybe to be a parent yeah. or maybe right. to be a manager. Right. And I think everyone has, you know, is born with a different operating system. So... For some people, you know, drastic change, going cold turkey is going to be the way to do it. And for others, you know, it might be um, cutting back slowly on a habit. I think being able to sort of play around with it from a place of curiosity and compassion rather than sort of like these like stringent demands probably would be more helpful in just understanding that even the smallest change over time can will grow yeah or right. sometimes small changes reverberate mm -hmm. quickly and surprisingly yeah. so it's kind of like you're you're i'm hearing you say something like um learn how you work right and learn how to sort of scaffold your own development right there's some trial and error for sure and when people say things to me like oh well meditation doesn't work for me right i try to honor that oh and you know, what did you like about it and what didn't you? And I don't assume that something, one thing is going to work for everyone. Well, meditation is a funny example. Or medication, meditation, I don't know, like either one, but I wouldn't expect that people would respond the same way. Yeah, of course, everyone is different, but of course, we're all pretty much the same. <laughs> okay. I once went to a talk that the Dalai Lama gave, though I'm not a, a Buddhist, um, but he started out by saying everyone is pretty much the same. You know, two, two eyes and nose, you know, of course there are exceptions. And we're all born a little bit differently and raised a little bit differently, but our basic motivational systems are the same. And if you learn how yours work, and if you really take in the idea that part of your job as a human being is to ensure your own development, that's a, that's a pretty significant responsibility, but an important one to embrace, I think. Well, you sort of touched on that second 
part of your list, the self-knowledge part. Yeah, it flows into self-knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, how can you scaffold your own development if you don't really have a good grasp of yourself? Right, and if you don't know that nobody can see their own blind spots, but we can get a sense of what they might be. What do you mean by that? Meaning, if we have, let's say, a block um, around a certain topic, it's almost impossible for someone to just decide to remove it. It's a defense and it's there for a reason. Oh, you mean sort of in the moment? Yeah. See, I would say, I would say no one can see their own blind spots until they can. <laughs> okay. And I think a lot of times when people are in, in, a, in a crude sense anxious about who they are or how well they know themselves, we tend to get stuck in the moment and think it's always going to be this way. Yeah. Like I'll never be able to see my own blind spots. It's like, yeah, actually you can if, you know, but do you want to, or, or what will that mean? And, and how will it feel? Right. Mm -hmm. And okay. It's very easy to have self-knowledge about all the wonderful, wonderful things about who I am, but it's much perhaps harder to have self-knowledge about the things that aren't so wonderful. Yeah. I was joking today about, about pickled vegetables. And what about them? It's like a pickled vegetable is like talking to a bunch of people and the pickled vegetable is going like, do you guys smell garlic? I swear it smells like garlic, you know, and of course pickled vegetables are usually pickled mm -hmm. in garlic among other things. And that flows into the emotional awareness. Right. Well, I think a lot of times that's the pivot because mm -hmm. you can have really, really good sort of intellectual awareness you're just in the wrong, what they call the wrong register. You're in an intellectual register and you could write a book about your psychology and what you need to change and why you are the way you are. You could even have a whole section in that book about how it affects you emotionally, but you're in this intellectual framework mm -hmm. and it doesn't actually precipitate change because, you know, in some sense, people are disconnecting themselves from where the action is in their own psyche. I think the feeling, being, being attuned to the feelings within ourselves, understand why uh, things affect us the way that they do. It's not always that, like you're, you Some can't people always are scared of their, their own feelings. Right. Where they've been scared by other people when they show feelings, yeah. hold, they can't cry. Mm -hmm. Or not, not had someone, especially when you're younger, say, well, how are you feeling about that? Right. It's okay. It's okay to be embarrassed. It's yeah. okay to fail. And Quite the opposite. Right. And, and usually in therapy, we learn to feel and name our feelings and to explore what they mean. Right. So. Which can be really, frankly, nauseating mm -hmm. for a lot of people. It can. Yeah. Right. But ultimately it's helpful for people to know how they feel about something. Though feelings can be misleading too. Feelings aren't facts, but they might be their alternative facts. Well, it's important information to be able to yeah. work with. It's yeah. not it's not either or. You know, you notice you have a feeling, mm -hmm. and then then you join it with your understanding of yourself, and then you can have good, mm -hmm. you know, what's called reflective function or mentalization. You can exercise proper self control. Mm -hmm. You can regulate your emotions. Yeah. It's yeah, very powerful. I, right. I do think it's important, though, to acknowledge whatever one is feeling um, in that moment. And even if they're not really in danger, but it feels that way or they're panicking, to be able to sit with that, to understand 
that it comes from somewhere and where is it coming from? What kind of information is it giving us? I think that's right. In order to be able to do that, you have to have some capacity to hold those feelings mm -hmm. and talk with yourself about them without needing to jump one way or the other, either right. to necessarily believe them or to reject them. And a lot of times if you stay with a feeling, it changes. So the initial feeling maybe is anger and then you slow down and you realize actually, quote unquote, underneath the anger is hurt. Yeah. And then you realize you were hurt. And then it's very different to feel hurt by someone than to be mad at someone, yeah. for example. And that's a good example because it leads into this sort of interpersonal piece. When we change, you know, we're not changing in a vacuum. It has implications for our relationships. And if we decide we're going to, you know, be the type of person that says, no, when we don't want to do something, it's going to echo through in, in some way and we have to be okay with that. Or you say, you know, let's talk about what that looks like. But the pressure of having someone ask something can often lead people to not be curious and to either feel like they have to say yes or no. A very powerful thing I think we talked about a podcast or two ago was something like, well, that sounds very appealing to me, but my schedule is very packed. Let me think about it. Or even if it's okay to have some things that are just yours. Right. And you're not a bad person because, or rigid, because mm -hmm. listen, this is this is my private thing for my own use. We, we were talking about um, sharing technology, yeah. you know, a, a microphone or a headset yeah. where it's like, well, you know what, this is mine. And that doesn't mean I don't care about you. And it, and we can get you a similar headset, but, but this one I need, and that's why right. it is here. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't make, uh, you know, it doesn't make that person a bad person. No. Or rigid. It's true. totally reasonable. Yeah. Arguably. I think different families function in different ways. Right. And so if someone says, well, I need this now, and they just grab a charger and go. Um, versus well, how come like, there's not enough chargers? <laughs> I have a theory about chargers. this. There's I never have a enough. <laughs> I have a, that's like where do the socks go in the dryer? <laughs> totally. But I have a theory that you have to reach charger saturation. <laughs> it's like chemistry. So you I keep getting theory. more and more chargers. And at some point, the concentration of chargers in the house mm -hmm. is high enough that there's always a charger. Yeah, that's like antithetical to everything in, you know, Marie Kondo and, and sustainability. So you're just going to have chargers everywhere. Well, I mean, I would assume Marie Kondo would say if you have five people in a perfect world, you have five chargers yeah. and they never break. Yeah. And they never get misplaced. Yeah. But in, 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 in other worlds that might be perfect in, in, in more uh, messy ways, mm -hmm. you've got 20 chargers. And there's always a charger and maybe they're, you know, in a drawer or something like that okay. and they're all tangled up and it takes yeah. a few minutes, but there's always a charger. You've reached charger saturation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. It's like receptors yeah. in the brain. Like right. there has to be enough molecules around to occupy enough of the receptors. Yeah. And yeah. then no one has to go without. Right. But it's not for everything. It's only for like chargers, right? It's only for things that you squabble over. Those yeah. things, you can eliminate the interpersonal situation by just reaching charger saturation or headphone <laughs> saturation. It's like, okay, okay, if you have the best pair of headphones in the house and everyone wants them and, and, you're, and you have the luxury of being able to afford it, get, get a few pairs of those. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's what it's really about in that case. Uh, what do you think it's really about, maybe? <laughs> trying See, that's to, what uh, happens, right? Trying it's to sabotage, <laughs> right? You know, resentment over um, someone. Well, I don't want to get. I don't want to get too deep into it. Don't want to get too it, too you know? personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there often is something else. I agree with you. And I think we can sort of generalize this for listeners that a lot of times when we do something, we get stuck on something or we end up feeling like one way or the other way is the only way. When you solve the problem, like, okay, just, hey, why don't you just get a whole bunch of chargers? Mm-hmm. Get a whole bunch of headphones. You won't have a problem. Then you don't have that problem. That problem was a symptom right. of fighting over the headphones. Right. Then the real problem, which you have sort of half- you want to be half aware of, yeah. then it's on the surface, right? which goes back to this idea of what do you need to change? You need to really feel what's going on right. and know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Starters. Right. Then you have to be willing to kind of do this sort of whatever your self-acceptance, which requires this sometimes difficult choices that we'd like mm-hmm. to maybe avoid. Yeah. So like avoidance of change somehow yeah. is important. There was one, I guess, one other thing I thought about was the future, like a partial knowledge of the future, which requires, like you're saying, being curious and Mm self-compassionate and and very planful, thinking about worst case scenarios, as well as Mm -hmm. things that you want to happen, so that we can really think through and really use the mind that, in my opinion, nature has endowed us with to think about what we want down the road to have a healthier dialogue with our future selves than we would otherwise have if we were in a state of fear or shame or avoidance or partial knowledge, partial emotional awareness. Exactly. So being able to really grapple with, the, with our thinking about the future and our feeling mm-hmm. about the future, I think is, it's very hard for people to do. It's hard, I think, because it's so fraught with fantasy or anxiety. Well, fantasy is a good thing, right? Yeah, it can be. It can be a really good thing because it can tell us what we want in a perfect world, get as close to that as possible. But but there's something scary about it as well. And I think just being able to kick the can down one path and then another path mentally um, is helpful. Being able to think through mm-hmm. different paths. Uh, exactly. Kick the can to me usually means avoiding and procrastinating, if I oh, understand really? that idiom. Yeah. Kicking the oh. can down the road is like putting something off. Oh, I thought it meant just like explore. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll, I'll fact check that after, <laughs> okay. after we're finished today. But I, I believe kicking the can down the road means to right. punt, like oh, not okay. to go for the touchdown. Oh. Um, oh, I thought it meant like a nice meander, but that explains a lot about my. My interpretation. I love looking up words to avoid or delay dealing with a problem. U.S. informal. So I, what I was meaning was to just explore, to meander, to design through exploration, like to use your imagination properly, perhaps to think, but to think about all the different possibilities and and ask, like you know, maybe what are the pros and cons, and yeah, keep an open mind to let yourself think things. And just um, to have it be exploratory, I guess, is what I'm saying. But at some point, you have to put your nickel down. You have to make a decision. Idioms, yeah. And people yeah. sometimes have trouble closing off possibilities. That That's right. one of my sort of closing thoughts. 
okay. is that a lot of times people have trouble you know the fear of missing out like well mm -hmm. if i pick this then i close that door another door opens but what if you know the other thing was better yeah and a lot of times the future ties in with feelings about mortality which the psychological field that deals with that is is called terror management theory mm -hmm. and there's plenty of research that more what's called mortality salience determines a great deal of the decisions we make in life i think yeah. particularly re regarding the future in some way Okay. Well, maybe that's a good topic for another episode. Clearly we have to wrap up right now. Yeah. We would love to hear your thoughts about change yeah. and challenges with change. For so sure. drop us a line. Yeah. Thank you for listening and for your time today. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.